Hello and welcome to the audio recording of What Works Best? Evidence-Based Practices to Help Improve New South Wales Student Performance. Produced by the Centre for Education Statistics and Evaluation, or CC. This paper will look at seven themes from the growing bank of evidence for what works best in schools to improve student outcomes. 1. Setting high expectations. 2. Using explicit teaching practices. 3. Providing effective feedback. 4. Using data to inform future practice. 5. Establishing and maintaining effective classroom management. 6. Supporting student well-being. And 7. Engaging in effective professional collaboration. Let's start with a brief introduction. In Australia, greater attention than ever before has been given to improving teacher quality, school leadership and student outcomes. Despite these efforts, trends in international assessment data suggest that the performance of Australian students continues to decline. Although New South Wales students typically perform above the Australian average, there is also evidence of a downward trend here in New South Wales. At the same time, NAPLAN results have largely plateaued. Over one in five New South Wales students do not complete high school, and some groups of students are statistically less likely to attain minimum standards or to achieve highly than their peers. Although there is significant commentary about this perceived decline in the performance of Australian students, we haven't always had clear, reliable and accessible evidence about how to turn these trends around. The New South Wales Department of Education has been working to address the deficiencies in our knowledge about how to make sustainable improvements in student outcomes. In particular, we are committed to examining the evidence base available for certain approaches and undertaking research to explore the effectiveness of other approaches. One obstacle to ongoing improvement in outcomes may, ironically, be our strong understanding of how much students' backgrounds impact their learning. Acknowledging the different resources that students bring with them to school is vital to meeting their learning needs effectively. It is important, though, that preconceptions about the abilities of students, or groups of students, don't compromise our commitment to helping all students realise their potential. Research shows that quality teaching practices tend to benefit students regardless of their background, but that access to effective teaching strategies is not evenly distributed. From taking into account demographic and school-level factors known to affect achievement, we also know that some schools have implemented effective practices and therefore have much to teach us all about how to support widespread success. This paper identifies seven themes from the growing bank of evidence we have for what works best in schools to improve student outcomes. This is not an exhaustive list of effective practices, but it is a useful framework for teachers and school leaders to consider when deciding how to challenge the status quo and tackle student improvement. Significantly, some of the strongest evidence available points to the benefit of refocusing on the basics. The seven themes identified as likely to make the biggest difference to our students are 1. Setting high expectations 2. Using explicit teaching practices 3. Providing effective feedback 4. Using data to inform future practice 5. Establishing and maintaining effective classroom management 6. Supporting student well-being and 7. Engaging in effective professional collaboration While these seven themes offer helpful ways of thinking about aspects of teaching practice, they are not discrete and may often overlap and connect with one another in complex ways. For example, 
providing timely and effective feedback to students is an element of explicit teaching, and being explicit about the learning goals of a lesson and the criteria for success gives high expectations a concrete form that students can understand. It is also important to note that the seven themes are not, and should not, be confined to what happens in classrooms. While the themes offer sound, evidence-based strategies for individual teachers to consider as part of their repertoires, the evidence, as discussed in the following chapters, suggests their effectiveness is likely to be stronger when they are implemented as whole school approaches. Ideally, everyone within a school, including school leaders, parents, students and community members, will share a commitment to both the school's vision for development and also to the mechanisms for achieving these goals. The building blocks for initiating and sustaining measurable educational improvement already exist. All schools have certain resources at their disposal and considerable authority over how they are used to achieve educational outcomes. In addition, New South Wales public schools have well-trained, qualified staff, a quality curriculum and safe buildings. Teachers have released time from face-to-face -face teaching and limited class sizes, and members of our broader community are engaged and committed. With the foundations already established, this paper doesn't intend to reinvent the wheel. Rather, it is intended to support existing efforts across our public schools to make more sustainable improvements in student outcomes. The first of the seven themes is high expectations. In a nutshell, why does setting high expectations matter? Research consistently finds that high expectations are linked with higher performance for all students, although the causal relationships between the two are complicated. Teacher expectations, which can include a range of factors, such as encouraging students to work hard, challenging them to do their best work, and to do their homework on time, have been found to make a positive difference to student outcomes. Students' own high expectations have also been shown to have positive effects. Here's what the evidence says about high expectations. Empirical studies since the 1960s have looked at the impact of teacher expectations on student performance. For example, in the famous 1965 Pygmalion in the Classroom study, US researchers told teachers that a group of randomly selected elementary school students had been identified through a new test as expected growth spurters. Across the school, the spurters gained almost four IQ points more than the control group after one year. The effect was particularly pronounced for younger students. The year one students gained over 15 IQ points more, and the year two students gained over nine points more than their respective control groups. Importantly, both findings were statistically significant. Although this research is not without critics, the majority of the evidence base, including more recent studies, does link higher teacher expectations with higher student performance. For example, a 2013 pilot study of New South Wales government students in years 4 to 12 asked students a range of questions about their feelings towards school. The results suggest that higher student performance in NAPLAN reading occurs where teachers set high expectations for the classroom and for students' work. Hattie, in his meta-analysis of what works to improve student performance, also found that teachers' high expectations for all students has a positive effect on student achievement. This research reinforces that where teachers expect a particular student to do well, this can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, regardless of the student's innate ability. This theory is supported by international researchers, including McKinsey et al., who found that in many high-performing countries, especially in Asia, academic achievement is perceived to be the result of students' hard work, 
rather than innate ability. While research consistently finds that high teacher expectations are linked with higher performance for all students, it is important to recognise that the reverse can also be true. There is evidence, including studies completed by Rees and McCoach and Jussum, that low expectations may play a part in explaining why so many students, including those from disadvantaged backgrounds and students who are academically gifted, do not reach their full potential. Without high expectations, NAPLAN and HSC data suggest that some academically gifted students are at risk of becoming underachievers in later years. Analysis of NAPLAN data indicates that while the majority of students follow a predictable achievement and gain pattern, a subset of students do not. For example, of the students achieving in the top 20% of NAPLAN reading in Year 7 in 2012, almost a third were no longer in the top 20% in Year 9. Further to this, around half of these students had declined by 15 or more percentiles. Similarly, time series analysis of the relationship between Year 9 NAPLAN performance and the HSC indicates a broad correlation between achievement in the two assessments, but there is also a sizable group of students who underperform in the HSC relative to what may have been predicted based on their Year 9 results. Creating an environment of high expectations for all students may help to jointly address some incidences of student underachievement and also inequities that exist currently in Australia and abroad. For example, American researchers Ford et al. have suggested that African-American students are less likely to be recognised as having gifted and talented potential. In Australia, the evidence suggests Aboriginal students often underperform relative to their potential. A leading researcher in this area, Graham Chaffee, claims that gifted Aboriginal students are underachieving to a far greater degree than even the rest of the Aboriginal population. Chaffee identifies a number of complex reasons why Aboriginal underachievement may occur, including that gifted Aboriginal students are often invisible underachievers, and so teachers may not recognise their potential. The research also suggests that high expectations must start early and be maintained throughout schooling. There is evidence, from studies completed by Blackherd et al. and Creed et al., that children start to show differences in their post-school aspirations as early as year two, and that, as a consequence, adjust their expectations downwards before starting high school. This highlights the need for a school culture of high expectations to start early and be maintained throughout schooling. This is further confirmed by a report published by Hommel and Ryan on young Australians' aspirations that found students who intended to complete Year 12 were 20 to 25% more likely to do so, and students who planned on attending university were between 15 and 20% more likely to do so. What are the implications of this research for teachers and schools? Firstly, all students need to be challenged. A culture of high expectations should be established early in schools, so that being challenged becomes the norm. The literature shows that challenging students continually to learn new things, including high-ability students, reduces the likelihood of underachievement. There is evidence, however, that many New South Wales students are not challenging themselves or being challenged enough in class to reach high expectations. For example, there has been a decline in the number of New South Wales students studying courses that have been traditionally viewed as more challenging, such as science, technology, engineering, maths, and advanced HSC courses. 
Between 1995 and 2013, the number of high-ability government school students, who are considered to be in the top 25% of all students, taking calculus-based maths courses dropped by 14%. The decline among non-government school students was even higher, at 27%. Significantly, in a 2013 student feedback survey, up to one in five New South Wales high school students reported not feeling challenged enough at school. This was particularly the case in maths. Data from the Trends in International Mathematics and Science Study, or TIMS, shows that for Australian students in years 4 and 8, the challenge of working on problems on their own is associated with higher average results in maths, and for year 8 science as well. This is consistent with CC research about the importance of teaching study skills and of teachers having and communicating clear expectations of what students need to learn. The second implication is that effective curriculum differentiation should be used to challenge students. Access to a broad, rigorous, challenging and suitably differentiated curriculum is an important factor of successful high expectation environments. Oakes's study of urban youth in the United States, a significantly disadvantaged population, shows that participation in academically rigorous tasks that prepare students for college admission is positively related to school achievement and educational aspirations. Research also indicates that along with a culture of high expectations, successful systems include mechanisms or tools that ensure students receive the differentiated teaching they need to achieve their full potential. Catering for diverse learning needs is an important teaching skill. There are benefits of effective differentiation for both lower and higher performing students. Despite the benefits of delivering a differentiated curriculum, the literature suggests that teachers in Australia are not generally good at differentiating the curriculum to meet the needs of high-potential, high-achieving students. Two Australian Senate inquiries in 1988 and 2001 into provisions for high achievers recommended an increase in pre-service teacher training in the education of high achievers and that this training become mandated. Despite these recommendations, Australian teachers continue to have little access to pre-service teacher professional learning for high-ability students. This means that teachers are often educating high-ability students without any exposure to how to differentiate the curriculum to accommodate different learning needs and challenge each student. To finish, let's summarise this section about high expectations, which has been identified as one of seven themes likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes. 1. High expectations are linked with higher performance for all students. 2. The reverse can also be true. Students may be achieving less than their full potential due to lower expectations of their ability. 3. A culture of high expectations should be established early in schools so that being challenged becomes the norm. 4. A culture of high expectations needs to be supported by differentiated instruction in every classroom and teachers need greater support to provide this type of instruction. The theme discussed in the next chapter is explicit teaching practices. The second of the seven themes identified as likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes is explicit teaching. In a nutshell, why does using explicit teaching matter? Overall, students who experience explicit teaching practices perform better than students who do not. Evidence to support the use of explicit teaching practices is long-standing and extensive, but worryingly, 
Data shows that students from low socioeconomic status backgrounds are less likely to experience explicit teaching practices. Here's what the evidence says about explicit teaching practices. Firstly, the literature shows that the task of defining and understanding what is meant by explicit teaching is not as simple as may be assumed. This is because the term explicit teaching is often used interchangeably with the term direct instruction. While this seems relatively straightforward, multiple definitions of direct instruction exist and this can lead to confusion. It is therefore important to note that this paper adopts John Hattie's definition of direct instruction to describe what it has termed explicit teaching. This definition is summarised by Hattie as The teacher decides the learning intentions and success criteria, makes them transparent to the students, demonstrates them by modelling, evaluates if they understand what they have been told by checking for understanding, and retelling them what they have been told by tying it all together with closure. Kirshner, Sweller and Clark note that this model of explicit teaching is sometimes represented as the opposite of inquiry-based or constructivist teaching, which involves students discovering or constructing essential information for themselves. But as Stephen Dinham, one of Australia's foremost education academics, has observed, this is a false dichotomy. Explicitly teaching subject content and critical thinking are not conflicting ideas. In fact, they can coexist. Explicit teaching recognises learning as a cumulative and systematic process, which starts by building strong foundations in core literacy and numeracy skills. Research supports a need for learners to master these core skills before higher-order learning can occur. For example, evidence shows the advantage of a phonics approach to teaching reading to children in preschool and the early years of primary school, rather than adopting a whole-language approach. Importantly, the teaching of phonics is usually characterised as requiring a high degree of teacher-centred presentation of learning material, as well as an emphasis on explicit instruction, scheduled practice and feedback. Explicit teaching also emphasises the use of questioning in the classroom, and in particular, the use of questioning to support comprehension, problem-solving, reasoning, creativity and learning. The literature identifies some questions as more effective than others. Craig, for example, distinguishes between shallow questions that verify existing knowledge and don't take much thought for students to answer, and deep questions, which require students to build connections between ideas. Data from the 2009 PISA study helps to reinforce the impact of effective questioning in the classroom and in particular, the positive impact that effective questioning has been shown to have on student outcomes. The data showed that students whose teachers rarely asked challenging questions were likely to perform below the OECD average of 493, while students who reported that their teachers frequently asked challenging questions were likely to score well above the already high Australian average. These findings support the need for teachers to have high expectations for their students, as was discussed in the first of the seven themes. Evidence in support of explicit teaching practices is long-standing. Explicit teaching was first evaluated during the 1960s in Project Follow-Through, a 10-year study that involved over 72,000 students, including control groups. The project aimed to compare the performance of disadvantaged students experiencing different educational practices. Explicit teaching was found to improve student outcomes in a variety of areas. Basic skills, cognitive conceptual skills 
and affective skills to a greater extent than any other approach. Subsequent studies have confirmed these findings about the benefits of explicit teaching practices. And as Kushner, Sweller and Clark have noted, when dealing with novel information, learners should be explicitly shown what to do and how to do it. The evidence shows clearly that students achieve significantly higher scores when their teachers challenge them and are explicit about both their expectations and the criteria for success. In New South Wales, for example, a 2013 survey shows that students who agreed that they knew the purpose of what they were learning at school scored on average 38 NAPLAN score points higher in reading performance than students who disagreed. International test data from the OECD's 2009 PISA assessment shows that students demonstrated learning more than a year in advance of their peers when they experienced the following four explicit teaching practices. 1. They were asked to explain the meaning of a text. 2. They were given the chance to ask questions about assignments. 3. They were asked challenging questions. And 4. They were told in advance how their work was going to be judged. Results from the 2012 PISA tests show a similar pattern. PISA data also shows that students from low socioeconomic backgrounds are less likely to experience explicit teaching practices. For example, while 72% of high SES students reported being asked to explain the meaning of a text, which is an example of explicit teaching, the proportion of low SES students asked to perform this same task was much lower, only 53%. What are the implications of this research on explicit teaching for teachers and schools? The evidence strongly supports teachers' use of explicit teaching practices. These include telling students what they will be learning and being clear about the purpose of tasks, demonstrating or explaining new ideas and checking that students understand, giving time for asking and answering questions, systematically delivering basic skills and teaching skills in the right sequence so that students master the building blocks of skills like literacy and numeracy, asking students challenging questions such as why, why not, how, what if, what is the evidence for this, and how does X compare to Y, assessing and confirming whether students understand what they are learning before progressing, and reviewing learning and explaining how it contributes to related and more complex skills. To finish, let's summarise this section about explicit teaching, which has been identified as one of seven themes likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes. 1. Students who experience explicit teaching practices make greater learning gains than students who do not experience these practices. Two. Explicit teaching practices involve teachers showing students clearly what to do and how to do it. It also ensures students are given time to engage with the learning process, ask questions and get clear feedback. 3. Explicit teaching recognises that learning is a cumulative and systematic process which starts by building strong foundations in core literacy and numeracy skills. The theme discussed in the next chapter is effective feedback. The third of the seven themes identified as likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes is effective feedback. In a nutshell, why does providing students with effective feedback matter? Feedback is widely recognised and promoted by the teaching profession as an effective practice. 
and both Australian and international data show that students who are given effective feedback tend to perform better than students who do not. Providing feedback is also recognised as a core component of a teacher's job and is prominent in AITSL's professional teaching standards. Here's what the evidence says about effective feedback. Firstly, teacher feedback impacts on student performance. Feedback, defined by Timperley as information provided by an agent, usually a teacher, to a student about aspects of performance or understanding, has been found to be among the most powerful influences on student achievement. One meta-analysis, which was reported by Hattie and Timperley, found that the impact of providing students with feedback was comparable to that of students' prior cognitive ability. Providing feedback is also a more cost-effective strategy than others, such as reducing class sizes. Data from PISA 2009 supports the view that feedback affects student performance. That data shows that Australian students whose teachers discuss students' work after they finish assignments in most, or all cases, perform better than students whose teachers do so less frequently. The results are similar in relation to teachers marking students' work. These PISA findings are supported by a 2013 survey of New South Wales students. Students who agreed that feedback from assessments and quizzes helped them learn tended to perform better than those who disagreed. However, students from high SES backgrounds were far more likely to agree with this statement compared with low SES students, indicating that low SES students are considerably less likely to receive effective feedback than their high SES peers. The evidence also indicates the types of feedback provided by teachers is important, and it's important to understand that not all feedback contributes to improved student outcomes. The evidence indicates that feedback which focuses on tasks, processes, and on student self-regulation is the most effective. For example, Early found that feedback which encourages self-regulation is more likely to help students develop their own strategies for managing the learning process. Additional studies, including one completed by Paris and Paris, found that this type of feedback impacts students positively by creating an internal incentive for students, as well as by enhancing motivation to take control of their learning, for example, by asking questions, taking notes, and allocating their time effectively. As mentioned previously, the types of feedback provided by teachers is important. It is concerning that Kluger and Denise's meta-analysis of the evidence on feedback found that over one-third of feedback interventions have a negative impact on student performance. Hattie and Timperley found that feedback with a heavy focus on the self, such as good girl or good boy, tends to be less effective because it gives no information about the task undertaken and can be too influenced by students' concept of themselves. Extrinsic feedback, such as stickers and rewards, also provides little feedback about the task at hand. As a result, Desi, Kostner and Ryan found that extrinsic rewards reduce students' internal motivation, while Hattie questions whether these types of rewards should even be classified as feedback. Currently, praise is one of the most common forms of feedback used in classrooms. However, Brummelman et al. confirmed in 2013 that praising children aged 7 to 11 with low self-esteem can be damaging. This is particularly the case when praise relates to innate ability, such as a teacher saying, you're very clever, rather than praising students' effort, such as a teacher saying, 
It is wonderful that you have worked so hard on this painting. Exaggerated praise, such as a teacher saying, that is an incredibly beautiful painting, is also less effective. A study by Brunnelman found that while inflated praise can cause children with high self-esteem to seek out challenges, it has the opposite effect on children with low self-esteem, who are more likely to withdraw to avoid failure, but who are also more likely to receive this kind of praise. Despite these findings, praise should not be excluded altogether as a feedback strategy. Gunderson and her colleagues found that praise can be effective when it is focused on effort, process and on deliberate practice, rather than on innate ability. So, what are the implications of this research on feedback for teachers and schools? Feedback that the evidence suggests is particularly effective in improving student outcomes includes feedback about a student's process or effort, such as saying, you must have tried hard, and feedback that encourages students' self-regulation, such as saying, you already know the key features of the opening of an argument, check to see whether you have incorporated them in your first paragraph. In contrast, forms of feedback that appear to be less effective include praise about a student's innate intelligence or talents, such as saying, you are a great student, and extrinsic rewards for work, such as stickers. To finish, let's summarise this section about effective feedback, which has been identified as one of the seven themes likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes. 1. Feedback is one of the most powerful influences on student achievement. 2. Feedback is most effective when it focuses on improving tasks, processes, student self-regulation and effort. 3. Rewards, as well as praise that relates to innate ability rather than providing information about the task undertaken, tend to be ineffective feedback and at times has a negative effect. The theme discussed in the next chapter is using data to inform practice. The fourth of the seven themes identified as likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes is using data to inform future teaching practice. In a nutshell, why does using data to inform teaching practices matter? An international review by education experts Barber and Morshed found that the best education systems in the world all use effective assessment data to drive improvement. We know that teachers who use data effectively can lift student performance by ensuring continued growth. However, systems cannot improve what they do not measure and what they do not know how to measure. A concerning finding from international research is that many international teachers have reported that they do not feel equipped to use assessment data for formative purposes, or indeed at all. Teachers and principals in New South Wales also identify the effective use of assessment data as an area for improvement in our schools. Before we delve into what the evidence reveals about using data to inform teaching practice, let's begin by defining briefly the two types of assessment mentioned in this chapter, formative assessment and summative assessment. Formative assessment, which can be formal or informal, is part of the learning process. It provides feedback to the learner and information for teachers to guide and direct students and reflect on their own teaching practice. Formative assessment is primarily intended for, and instrumental in, helping a student attain a higher level of performance. It is often ungraded and, by definition, low stakes. Formative assessment is deemed to be assessment for learning and always occurs prior to summative assessment. Summative assessment tests a student's level of achievement at the end of a course, or a period of time. 
it is geared towards reporting or certification. Often classified as high stakes, summative assessment is deemed to be assessment of learning. Here's what the evidence says about using data to inform teaching practice. Firstly, when teachers are equipped with the skills to interpret and use data effectively, student outcomes improve. For example, a study by Timperley in 2009 showed that a professional development program for teachers that focused on the interpretation and use of assessment information resulted in student achievement gains accelerating at twice the expected rate. A meta-analysis by RAND Corporation found that allocating time to collaborative data analysis and inquiry assists educators in understanding how such data can contribute to school improvement. Although there are a number of studies reporting a link between the effective use of assessment data and improved student outcomes, it's important to acknowledge that the evidence is still accumulating on this topic. However, the evidence we do have indicates that good assessment practice is essential if the resulting data is to inform teaching practice effectively. Historically, assessment data has been used to provide information about a student's level of ability. Formative assessment has changed this, as its main purpose is to provide a source of information or data for teachers to guide and direct students and to reflect on the effectiveness of their own practice. Black and William provide two specific suggestions about using formative assessment effectively. Firstly, for teachers to ensure that classroom assessment provides accurate and important information. And secondly, that the assessment should give effective feedback to students. To produce data that can be used to inform teaching practice effectively, teachers need to be able to design classroom assessments that are frequent, high quality and have clear, consistent scoring criteria. For students to benefit from ongoing and constructive assessment, teachers must also provide timely and specific feedback based on that data. Although New South Wales teachers are increasingly focusing on using data to inform students' outcomes, the evidence reveals a need for further professional learning so teachers know how to use the data more effectively. In New South Wales, there is some evidence that indicates a shift towards training teachers to use data effectively. For example, teachers who received professional learning on the effective use of data as part of the National Partnerships on Literacy and Numeracy reported a greater understanding of data analysis tools and techniques, leading to changes in their classroom practice. For instance, 81% of the teachers said that this professional learning had led to more effective classroom teaching of literacy and numeracy. While an increasing number of teachers report that they are using data to inform their practice, there is evidence that further professional learning or training is needed, both for practising and pre-service teachers, so that this data is used even more effectively. The Staff in Australia's School Survey, or SIAS, found that a quarter of primary teachers identified a need for more professional learning in making effective use of student assessment information, and nearly 20% for interpreting achievement reports from national or statewide assessments. The findings were similar for secondary teachers. Early career teachers, who are in their first five years of teaching, particularly those in primary schools, were more likely to report a greater need for further professional learning in these areas than those with more experience. Significantly, of the early career primary teachers surveyed, just over a third reported that their pre-service teacher education course was not helpful for interpreting national or statewide assessment data. 
their views were more positive about the effective use of student assessment data, with almost half of all teachers surveyed finding that their pre-service education had been helpful or very helpful. Results were similar for secondary teachers. Principals agreed that there is a lack of teacher preparation in this domain, with only 14% of primary principals reporting that graduates were prepared or very well prepared to interpret national or statewide achievement reports, and only 23% were prepared or very well prepared in making effective use of student assessment information. The findings for secondary teacher graduates were slightly more positive. What are the implications of this research on using data to inform practice for teachers and schools? When teachers are able to use and implement assessment data effectively, they can drive improvement in student achievement and well-being outcomes. Quality data is important. Teachers need to be able to design and implement good formative assessment to obtain useful data which they can use to adapt and inform their teaching practice. School leaders need to encourage a whole-of-school focus which means school leaders must support teachers' professional learning in effective data use and encourage evidence-based teacher practices across the school. This includes promoting discussions about data, supporting use of assessment data to address students' needs, and facilitating opportunities for collaboration within and across schools. To finish, let's summarise this section about using data to inform practice, which has been identified as one of seven themes likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes. 1. Effective analysis of student data helps teachers identify areas where students' learning needs may require additional attention and development, and understand which students respond better to different teaching approaches in their classroom. 2. High-quality assessment practice is crucial for effective data analysis of student outcomes and well-being. 3. Teachers need access to tools, skills and training to help them interpret and use this data effectively. The theme discussed in the next chapter is classroom management. The fifth of the seven themes identified as likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes is classroom management. In a nutshell, why does effective classroom management matter? When a class is well managed, teachers can spend more time focusing on teaching and less time on controlling students' behaviour. Evidence shows that improving classroom management practices can help improve students' performance. A 2013 New South Wales survey shows that from the end of primary school to the middle years of high school is the most challenging time for teachers in relation to classroom discipline. Effective classroom management is also important because it is known to impact on the stress levels and attrition rates of teachers, particularly those who are new to the profession. Let's start by defining the term. Classroom management is somewhat of an umbrella term that encompasses a broad range of strategies, approaches and actions taken by teachers to encourage a safe, positive and stimulating learning environment for their students. Here's what the evidence says about classroom management. Firstly, the evidence base addressing classroom management issues and strategies is both extensive and long-standing with meta-analyses completed as far back as the 1950s. The first main finding from the evidence base is that effective classroom management can help lift student performance. PISA 2012 data shows that performance in mathematics was higher where students reported that their teachers were able to manage their classroom effectively. Secondly, 
Ineffective classroom management causes significant teaching time to be lost. Many teachers report that managing student behaviour takes up a significant share of their time and energy that would otherwise be spent teaching. For example, a 2014 Western Australian study found that over the course of a week, the equivalent to a full day of teaching time was spent on managing behaviour. In the 2013 Teaching and Learning International Survey, or TALIS, New South Wales teachers identified disruptive student behaviour as a key reason that they lost quite a lot of teaching time. The evidence, including studies completed by Ingersoll and Smith, Browers and Tomic, and Kellum et al., show that classroom management is known to affect the stress levels and attrition rates of new teachers in particular. A review of teacher education found that beginning teachers feel that they receive inadequate training in establishing positive classroom environments. And further to this, another Australian study of pre-service teachers, which was conducted after their first practical teaching experience, revealed these teachers believe classroom management is the most difficult thing and that they would like to be better equipped with classroom management strategies before they start teaching. It is not only new teachers who have highlighted classroom management as a key challenge in their professional lives. The 2010 and 2013 SIAS surveys both show that classroom management, and in particular managing student behaviour, has been identified by many teachers as an area where they need more professional learning. What are the implications of this research on classroom management for teachers and schools? Firstly, it is important that effective professional learning and classroom management is provided to all teachers, and in particular to new and trainee teachers. According to Oliver and Reshley, this professional learning should include providing teachers with instructional approaches for classroom management through coursework and guided practice with feedback. Greenberg, Putnam and Walsh point to five key proactive strategies that should be used to create well-managed classrooms. According to their research, teachers and schools should 1. Foster and maintain student engagement by including opportunities for active student participation in lessons. 2. Establish and teach classroom rules to communicate expectations for behaviour. 3. Build structure and establish routines to help guide students in a wide variety of situations. 4. Reinforce positive behaviour. And 5. Impose consequences for misbehaviour consistently. In addition to these five strategies, further analysis of the research suggests that classroom management strategies are most effective when they are 1. Part of a school-wide approach to behaviour management 2. Built on positive teacher-student relationships and 3. Implemented with fidelity To finish, let's summarise this section about classroom management which has been identified as one of seven themes likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes. 1. Effective classroom management is important for creating conditions that are conducive for learning and where excessive time isn't spent on managing student behaviour. 2. Data confirms a link between effective classroom management and student engagement, management and performance. 3. Teachers who are new to the profession are likely to benefit from explicit support in developing effective classroom management, and all teachers will benefit from a school-wide approach to behaviour management. The theme discussed in the next chapter is well-being. The sixth of the seven themes identified as likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes 
is student wellbeing. In a nutshell, why does student wellbeing matter? Higher levels of wellbeing are linked to better student outcomes across a broad range of domains, from academic achievement to mental health and responsible life choices. For example, the evidence shows that students with higher levels of well-being are more likely to be higher academic achievers and complete Year 12, have better mental health and a more pro-social and responsible lifestyle. Paying attention to student well-being also acknowledges the pivotal role that education plays in preparing students for a rewarding life beyond school. Here's what the evidence says about student well-being. The evidence shows that there are a number of core elements that affect student well-being. These are grouped broadly into the following. Creating a safe environment, ensuring connectedness, engaging students in learning, promoting social and emotional learning, and a whole school approach. Although these groups are mostly distinguished for the purposes of outlining the evidence base, it's worth remembering that they are intrinsically interconnected. Firstly, the evidence suggests that the majority of students in New South Wales government schools are positively engaged. A 2014 survey of New South Wales students found that the majority of students surveyed are engaged at school, with around three quarters of students reporting positive friendships at school and two thirds having a sense of belonging at school. However, not all students are equally likely to experience these facets of well-being. Some students are more likely to be more vulnerable to lower levels of well-being than others. For example, students as they transition from primary to high school, girls rather than boys, students in low SES schools, students from different cultural and linguistic backgrounds, Aboriginal students, students with disability, and lesbian, gay and transgender students. The evidence shows that schools need to offer students emotional as well as physical safety. A safe school is one where the physical environment does not lead to harm or injury for students. The emotional environment is a positive one where students feel safe to attend school and know they will be supported should they encounter any issues. And a healthy lifestyle is promoted. In schools, the behaviour most likely to undermine a safe space is bullying which can be physical, verbal or psychological. Studies have shown negative effects of bullying for both students who bully and students who are bullied. The Australian Catholic University and Erebus International report that students who are bullied are more likely to display a range of mental health difficulties, while Glue et al. also found links between being bullied and lower academic achievement. Many studies have also made links between bullying others at school and later violent, antisocial and or criminal behaviour. In addition to offering students a safe environment, well-being evidence also highlights the need for students to be engaged with school on multiple levels, including emotionally, behaviourally and intellectually, to achieve the best outcomes. Abbott Chapman notes that measures of engagement may include affective dimensions such as enjoyment of school and relationships with teachers and peers, cognitive measures such as academic performance or attainment, and behavioural dimensions such as attendance and participation in school activities. Research over the last 30 years, including a 2014 study completed by Gallup Education, has increasingly shown that student engagement is not only an important outcome in itself, but it is also related directly to academic performance and future outcomes. 
Other studies of student engagement have shown that increased student engagement has a flow-on effect in regard to educational and occupational success many years into the future. For example, Abbott Chapman's 2014 Australian study found that increased student engagement was linked to an increased likelihood of achieving post-compulsory education over the next 20 years. Student engagement was found to have a greater influence than family background or personality. Lastly, the evidence shows that whole school approaches should focus on promoting quality relationships between students, teachers, the school and the local community, including parents. There is strong evidence that the teacher-student relationship is critical, particularly for low SES students and for girls who generally report less positive teacher-student relationships. Results from PISA 2012 suggest that students who are in schools where teacher-student relationships and the learning climate are poor are more likely to have low levels of engagement with and at school. In particular, they are also more likely to arrive late for school, skip classes or days of school, report a weak sense of belonging and hold negative attitudes towards school. In contrast, Dunleavy and Milton found that where positive teacher-student relationships developed, students reported that these relationships were what most helped them to thrive, in spite of the challenges they were experiencing in their lives. This is backed up by further research, including studies completed by Mazzano, Mazzano and Pickering, and Williams, Friesen and Milton, which found higher quality teacher-student relationships are linked to higher levels of engagement and fewer disciplinary problems. Significantly, the findings suggest that the role of the classroom teacher may be as important, or even more important, than students' family background. Within New South Wales public schools specifically, findings from a 2014 survey indicate that students in Year 7 and Year 12 have the most positive relationships with their teachers, while high SES students reported significantly better relationships in all years compared with low SES students. The evidence shows that relationships more broadly across the whole school community, including the local community and parents, leads to greater student connectedness at school. Within the school environment, connectedness is realised and promoted in the quality of the relationships between students and their teachers, between students and the school, between students and other students, and between schools and the local community, including parents. A Victorian longitudinal study found low levels of school connectedness in teenagers were linked to an increased likelihood of later problems with alcohol and drug use and other risk-taking behaviours, mental health issues and violence. What are the implications of this research on well-being for teachers and schools? For teachers and schools, it is important to recognise that the relationship between student well-being and engagement is two-way. That means improving well-being can facilitate intellectual engagement and improving intellectual engagement can also promote well-being. It might also be helpful to keep in mind that focusing on building positive teacher-student relationships can make a meaningful difference to students, particularly low SES students as well as girls. Using school-based anti-bullying programs is one way to work towards making schools safe spaces for students. These programs are effective and they can be used in collaboration with other strategies, including parent meetings, firm disciplinary methods and improved playground supervision to achieve positive outcomes for students. Student compliance does not necessarily indicate well-being at school. 
Teachers, therefore, need to be attentive to all students and monitor the breadth of student well-being so they better understand the well-being levels of their students. Adopting a whole school well-being approach is important, as student well-being cannot be separated from the broader school context. In fact, the school context has the potential to influence well-being significantly. Well-being measures are most effective when they are integrated into the school learning environment, the curriculum and pedagogy, the policies and procedures at school, and the partnerships inherent within and outside schools, including teachers, students, parents, support staff and community groups. To finish, let's summarise this section about student wellbeing, which has been identified as one of seven themes likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes. 1. There is an increasing focus on student wellbeing, both in New South Wales as well as internationally. Two. This increased focus has stemmed from evidence that links higher levels of students' well-being with improved student outcomes, including higher academic achievement, Year 12 completion, better mental health, and a more pro-social and responsible lifestyle. 3. Creating a safe environment, ensuring connectedness, engaging students in learning, promoting social and emotional learning, and a whole school approach have been identified as the elements that most affect student well-being. If you'd like more information about anti-bullying strategies, look for CC's publication Anti-Bullying Interventions in Schools, What Works, and the department's anti-bullying website, which provides a range of strategies for educators, parents and students to use in response to bullying. The final theme, which will be discussed in the next chapter, is collaboration. The last of the seven themes identified as likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes is collaboration. In a nutshell, why does collaboration matter? Great teachers don't just happen, they are developed and keep on developing throughout their professional lives. Due to the nature of teaching, however, teachers need to work harder than many other professionals to break down the potential silo effect and ensure that best practice can be both identified and shared across classrooms. Teacher professional learning and collaborative practice are critical to improving teacher quality and student outcomes, and there is extensive evidence that teacher quality impacts significantly on students' learning. However, it can be difficult to measure the effect of different professional learning approaches and broad ideas like collaboration, and there is a lack of robust studies that focus on how teacher professional development programs impact on student outcomes. Nevertheless, here's what we do know from the existing evidence base. Firstly, we know that great teachers learn from other teachers. Barber and Morshed note that collaborative practice both between teachers and across schools is an important feature of many high-performing school systems such as Finland and Japan where teachers are encouraged to work together in a variety of ways. This includes, but is not limited to, planning lessons jointly, observing each other's lessons and helping each other improve. Teachers can observe each other's lessons in a number of ways, either formally, as happens in Shanghai, teaching and research groups, or more informally. Interestingly, the OECD Teaching and Learning International Survey, or TALIS, shows that although New South Wales teachers report high levels of engagement with some collaborative practices, fewer New South Wales teachers reported that they have observed other teachers' classes and provided feedback, or have taught jointly, compared with Australia as a whole, and also other countries including Singapore. 
Using teacher observation effectively as a professional learning activity requires processes to be put in place that explicitly consider how different teaching approaches impact on students' learning in the classroom. To improve teacher performance, these processes must include effective mechanisms for appraisal and feedback. This is highlighted in a Grattan Institute report which suggests that effective systems of teacher appraisal and feedback that are linked directly to improved student performance can increase teacher effectiveness by up to 30%. The research also shows us that professional networks and professional learning communities can be beneficial. While TALIS data indicates that 58% of New South Wales teachers are part of a network of teachers, it is important to note that the evidence based on the effectiveness of these networks and communities is mixed. For example, in Australia, Jenny Gore and her colleagues have developed Quality Teaching Rounds, a form of professional learning that involves guided reading, discussion and observation by teachers who are part of a professional learning community. CC completed a preliminary evaluation of Quality Teaching Rounds, which shows that they are correlated with improvements in teaching, teacher satisfaction and student outcomes. In contrast, Alton Lee drew very different conclusions about the effectiveness of professional learning communities. Her synthesis of 72 studies found professional learning communities can be associated with negative effects on student outcomes because counterproductive professional learning communities can reinforce deficit thinking and structural inequalities. Despite the mixed findings, leading researchers, including Hattie and Timperley, indicate the professional learning communities while not generally sufficient by themselves, do have the potential to improve student outcomes. To have a positive impact on student outcomes, Hattie and Timperley note that they must be structured in a way that challenges problematic beliefs, test the efficiency of competing ideas, and focus continually on student outcomes. This may require an expert to make sure that discussions are grounded in student outcomes and that entrenched beliefs are challenged. The research also shows school leadership and the whole school environment are key components of effective collaboration. Barber and Morshed claim that school leadership has the second greatest impact on students' outcomes, second only to that of classroom teachers. According to Garrett et al., positive student outcomes are more likely to be achieved if professional development is supported by the wider school community. Further to this, Darling Hammond notes that if teachers are not supported in the implementation of new strategies, professional development has a reduced impact. Therefore, teachers need the organisational support of their schools in terms of evidence base, collective goals to aim for, and circumstances that continue to motivate improvement in order to enact sustainable improvements in student outcomes. To help improve teaching practices at their school, Point et al. suggests that school leaders need to become instructional leaders that is, leaders of learning, and be responsible for facilitating and encouraging participation in professional learning activities. What are the implications of this research on explicit teaching for teachers and schools? The evidence supports a range of collaborative approaches that can and should be integrated and embedded in ongoing professional learning across the teaching profession. There are four implications to this. One, a focus on students' outcomes. Teachers' professional learning and development needs to centre first and foremost on students' needs and improving learning outcomes. 2. Teachers should be willing to open their classrooms to one another, be prepared to evaluate other teachers and be evaluated, and support the broad aim of working together to improve the quality of teaching across the whole profession. 
Structured teacher observation can support the testing of new and innovative teaching practices by assessing how effectively they work in the classroom. 3. Professional networks should include components of external expertise to ensure that best practice models are identified through a process of critical validation. 4. Having a whole of school focus. School leaders need to successfully create a culture in which collaborative planning, reflection on instruction and peer coaching are embedded in everyday school life so that teachers are supported and support one another to continuously develop their skills and knowledge. To finish, let's summarise this section about collaboration, which has been identified as one of seven themes likely to make the biggest difference to student outcomes. 1. Great teachers don't just happen. They are developed and keep on developing throughout their professional lives. 2. Effective collaboration is key to sharing successful and innovative teaching practices across the teaching profession. 3. Not all collaboration is effective. Therefore, teachers need to engage in professionalised collaboration that aims explicitly to improve teacher practices and student outcomes. This should be supported by each school's leader. This concludes the audio recording of the report, What Works Best? Evidence-Based Practices to Help Improve New South Wales Student Performance. To read the full paper, complete with reference material, please visit the CC website at cese.nsw.gov.au. This audio paper was written and produced by the Centre for Education Statistics and Evaluation and is read by Samuel Cox. Thanks for listening.